Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. We're always happy to have Matilda at the store. Yes. Right? Right? Uh, Matilda Bernstein Sycamore is the award-winning author of a memoir and three novels and the editor of five nonfiction anthologies. Her memoir, The End of San Francisco, won a Lambda Literary Award, and her previous title, Why Are Faggots So Afraid of Faggots? Flaming Challenges to Masculinity, Objectification, and the Desire to Conform was an American Library Association Stonewall Honor Book. And Sycamore's novels include So Many Ways to Sleep Badly and Pulling Taffy, and her anthologies include Nobody Passes, Rejecting the Rules of Gender and Conformity, and That's Revolting, Queer Strategies for Resisting Assimilation. I think this is probably... Um, the most tame title he's ever had for a book. She's ever had for a book. Please welcome Matilda. <laughs> thanks so much, Noelle. And thanks, everyone. And thank you. You know, some hosts at bookstores, they say, they're like, they look at that title, why are, and then they're like, they move on to like the next part. <laughs> So I'm glad that you're not afraid. Um, thanks for everyone for coming tonight in not just rain, but a downpour. So I love this full house. Thanks to all the brave souls here. And tonight I'm going to read, I'll read from a chapter uh, towards the end of the book. All you really need to know is that Sketch to See takes place in 1995 in Boston. The narrator, Alexa, is a 21-year-old queen. And yeah, so I always like to say that whatever you need to do to take care of yourselves during the reading, please do. So if you need to laugh, cry, applaud, jump up and down, you know, uh, go to the bathroom, run outside for some air, don't smoke though. Um, <laughs> anything but smoking is allowed. Uh, but I always like to say, you know, the only bad audience is the dead audience, right? You know, the audience that just sits completely still, totally silent, like we're all trained to, and then dies, right, in the middle. So <laughs> I can tell that this is not going to be the dead audience. So thank you all for coming. Then, of course, there'll be time for questions, uh, maybe some answers, some more questions, drama, devastation, extrapolation, explosion, and all sorts of extravagance. So, um, yeah, so thank you once again. So, let's see. I'm gonna get to the point. How's my voice on the microphone? We're feeling it? Okay, good, good. I'd like to hear that. Too sexy. Avery calls me up and says, Alexa, I figured it out. You figured what out? I figured it out, Alexa. I figured it out. I figured it out. I figured it out. Honey, you are coked out of your mind. 
Alexa, who isn't? But listen up. I know you're always talking about how everyone in Boston is totally apathetic, and I'm like the worst example. I mean, I don't even have a political bone in my body. I know I was a poli-sci major for like 10 minutes, but I didn't even know what was going on. I thought poli-sci was science. (laughs) Alexa, there are so many problems, so many problems, and I know you know, I know, I know, I know, Alexa. What was I saying? What was I saying? Oh, I still don't fucking know what's going on, but I thought of something we can do together. Oh, maybe I shouldn't say it on the phone. (laughs) Alexa, it's true. I have to wait at the haunted house for a few deliveries, but I'll tell you my idea later when I see you. I think you'll like it. I think you'll really like it. Really, really, I'm sure. I'm really sure, okay? Later. Avery and I are at Bertucci's, and she looks around to make sure no one's paying attention, and then says, listen, Alexa, listen. Remember when we went to Star Market last night to get contact lens solution? Yes, last night. That was last night. (laughs) Okay, so I was looking around at everyone looking at you. Everyone. And no one. No one at all. No one was looking at me. You see what I mean? (laughs) Not exactly. Alexa, don't play coy with me, coy decoy. You're the one who likes to call it bargain shopping. No one was looking at me. Got it? Oh, okay, yes. Yes, I get it. Bargain shopping realness. I knew it, Alexa. I knew it. And you're right about something else. I should smoke more pot. I didn't realize I could be so hungry. Even though there isn't any fucking cheese in this pizza, it's yummy. Almost as yummy as you. And here's my example. It's cold out, right? Really fucking freezing your ass off cold. So what do people need? People outside. People stuck the fuck outside in this fucking freezing cold. Sleeping bags, right? Usually, I'm so focused on my own bargain shopping, studying everyone's reactions while I yawn and pretend to be, oh, so relaxed. Wait, did I tell you how relaxed I am? Honey, I could almost fall asleep right here. Everyone looks at my hair, but then there's the moment when they look away, and that's when I liberate those $70 vitamins. (laughs) But it's so much easier when all I have to do is take in the attention, bask in it, glow. Whenever someone glances in Avery's direction, I ask some idiotic question or act like I'm about to slip a hula hoop into my purse, and boom, all eyes are on me. Eight sleeping bags in one afternoon. We can't help but adding up the prices on the labels just to see. Okay, goodbye evidence. Hello, homeless shelter. Let's just drop these off outside. Remember the unbelievable truth where in the beginning two girls are lying in the grass looking up at the sky while talking to one another? And that's kind of how I feel in the car with Avery, doing another bump of coke. And this is our movie, shot from inside a cream-colored Mercedes. It's probably not called cream. 
Avery, what do they call this color? Breathe deep and let your head roll back and then step outside like you don't even notice. The camera's on you. Yes, you. Every store has plenty of mirrors, even if they're selling sporting goods in Alston, Cambridge, Brookline, and everybody knows mirrors are for runway, high-level, undercover, stunway. Honey, what is all this gear for? Bug smearer, rain fearer, 40 degrees below zero, dream gear, hair smear, bug fear, right here, turn. Think about waving, waving for the cameras, especially when they're playing highway to hell. Think, but don't look. Yawn again, turn, Avery's out the door. Pose, let the lights blend into your eyes, walk. Another bump? Of course, darling, of course. You always know how to provide. The good thing about the Coke cure is that it helps with my cough. No, seriously, just a little bump and I'm fine. Another bump and I'm even better. A third bump and the cough is practically gone. Or if not, what a perfect distraction. AIDS alert in aisle four. Cameras ready, prepare to flash. Runway, runaway. Avery, you're right, you're right. This is fun. Fun for the whole family. Whose family? Brighter days, brighter days, brighter days. Wait, what am I making for dinner? Yes, dinner. Do you want to come over? Oh, probably not a good idea. I mean, not right at this moment. Why not at this moment? You don't want Sugar Daddy to see you with your bitchy boyfriend? I don't want him to see me with my bitchy boyfriend when we're both coked out of our minds. I am not coked out of my mind. I'm coked into my mind. Girl, that's brilliant. But wait, today's the day we get our test results. Here we are on Boylston, opening the door in the wind tunnel and then checking at the front desk where the receptionist gives us that fake smile and then waves us into the waiting room dungeon. Clinics are so depressing. It's like they're just waiting for you to die. Why can't they at least play good music? Something with a beat, maybe a DJ and a dance floor. They could easily fit a disco ball over there in that corner with, by the dusty plastic flowers. What about real flowers? Even something cheap, carnations. What about carnations? What about art on the walls? I'm sure there are plenty of rich people who would be glad to donate art. Or if not, then give me a couple 20s and I'll go to the Goodwill to find some wacky glamour. Or at least paint the walls bright colors instead of this atrocious, faded, gray and tan wallpaper. We're here to take care of ourselves, not to fade into nothingness. What about velvet sofas and herbal tea and steamed vegetables and brown rice? And maybe something to read besides pamphlets about STDs. What if the clinic was like a cafe where you could hang out and gossip and cruise or even read a good book? There could be a library or free massage or acupuncture or hugs, right? What about hugs? 
Instead of hugs, we just get sterile beige carpet and hand-me-down office chairs and a few boring ads for safe sex. What about makeup lessons or a reading group? If no one wants to read, we could practice all Kevin O'Quan's makeup tricks. I wouldn't mind practicing makeup tricks with a bunch of queens at the STD clinic. What about a DJing workshop? I would love a DJing workshop. Art supplies. What about art supplies? They call my number, and Avery's still holding my hand, and I'm thinking about colored pencils and crayons and magic markers and oil pastels. Or what about making collages? The clinic would be such a great place to make a collage. It wouldn't even cost anything. Everyone could just bring in their old magazines and cut and paste and get to know one another. It would be fun. Avery's squeezing my hand tighter. I can't believe she's 23, but she's never been tested before. They call my number again, and then I'm in another sterile room. This one feels like they sucked out all the air, and some blonde woman in a powder blue cardigan with pearly buttons asks me what I would do if I tested positive. I have nothing against powder blue cardigans. Especially not powder blue cardigans with pearly buttons. I mean, I have a lavender one just like that. But that strand of pearls around her neck, real pearls. Those pearls, I want to say. What are you trying to say with those pearls? How would you react if you tested positive, she asked me again. Honey, I'm thinking, I would jump off a bridge. Can you take me to the highest bridge? I need a ride. You don't drive? Then at least give me directions. I want to say that I would go out and do so many drugs that I wouldn't even know my name. My name is Luca. I live on the second floor. I live upstairs from you. Yes, I think you've seen me before. But instead, I just say, I don't know. She asks me about my risks. I don't ask about hers. Is she going to give me my results? After she suggests condoms for oral sex, yeah, I already tried that. She finally looks down at the piece of paper, and she says, you tested negative for HIV. Thank you for coming in today. Do you have any questions for me? Back in the waiting room. Now I'm nervous waiting for Avery until he comes out with a smile. Can't believe how hot it is in here. I'm totally covered in sweat. We get to Avery's and she pours a bunch of coke on the mirror without even taking off her coat, snorts way too much, and then shakes her head back and forth and starts jumping up and down. She hands me the mirror, says, let me hold you while you do it. Come on, come on. Hurry up, catch up with me, and then I'll bend you over and fuck you over the sink. I thought you never wanted to have sex again. That was before. I wake up the next day singing, I think I love you. What am I so afraid of? I'm afraid that there's no cure for. What are the rest of the words? No cure for, no cure for. Avery, do you know that song? Who sings it? I think I love you. What am I so afraid of? Yeah, yeah, that's the one. 
I'm just imitating you. <laughs> the way it all blends together, one day and then the next, one store and then the next, one line and then the next, the day we wheel a whole shopping cart full of canned food out of Star Market, hello, food drive, and then the next Star Market, and the next. Honey, we're getting a tour of all the star markets. Who's the star now? <laughs> that feeling in my head, where am I? That feeling when I'm sitting with Nate and he's speaking and I'm trying to pay attention. Oh, right, another cocktail. Thank you. That feeling in my head, so warm and cool at the same time, blending these pills and powders and potions and yes that feeling in my head hold me. The way my eyes can be blue, but really that's white and blue and a circle of green. Sparkly brown spots on the left. I never realized brown could sparkle. Is it really purple in disguise? Like the way the white of the eyes is the part that shines the most. And you never realize that from far away. Or the way skin is really all these little holes, some dry and some greasy, even after the apricot facial scrub and oil-free moisturizer. It's never just smooth except from far away. And I guess that's why so many people wear so much makeup. But even the bags under my eyes can become pretty when I stare long enough and let everything blur. Look, look how my lower lip is bigger and puffier and redder than the upper lip. And now, our special guests for the night. Teeth, that's just the way you are. Teeth, we think of you as white, but that's only compared to night. So much closer to yellow, hello, unless you've been bleached. Bleached, leached, and impeached. No, don't impeach my teeth. I swear they didn't mean to lie when they said they were light, bright, spite, fright, mighty, fighty, tighty, whitey, I swear. Really, stop looking for stains, okay? Stop pulling back skin to disguise structure. Focus on the way the water pours over your hands in little, tiny waterfalls. All this hot water for my hands. Oatmeal soap a massage until I'm ready to take out my contacts. Right, I'm taking out my contacts. And then, time for magical Marinol. Oh, yes. Avery rings the bell, and when I get to the door in my robe, he's standing there with sunflowers. What a great way to start the day. Then she reaches down and picks up a boombox. Where'd you get that boombox? I'm bringing back the 80s. Oh, no, please not the 80s. Anything but the 80s. Even the 70s. I mean, you know how much I hate disco, but anything's better than Michael Jackson. Thank you for the flowers. They're beautiful. 
Okay, 1991. It was only four years ago, but wait until you hear this. You're beautiful. Too sexy. Avery wants to watch the sunset, and when we get to the esplanade, it's almost warm out. I mean, it's freezing, but at least there's no wind. Look at those pink clouds over there. Someone's finally lighting the Sitco sign on fire. Avery puts the boombox down and says, Are you ready? And she presses play. No way. The beat starts and I can't help it. I'm flinging myself into the air and around, falling to the ground and rolling in the frozen grass toward water, and then jumping across the paved part and back again for more space. Give her. Give her what? Give her the river. Deliver. Shiver my liver. And Avery's clapping and I'm throwing my arms everywhere. Hands flying up and back, head in every direction. Yes, there are a few tourists and joggers who look scared. Too sexy for my, too sexy for my, too sexy for my. And then I do the big kick in the air as high as possible. And I land with one leg straight out and the other crossed underneath. Like I'm just sitting there so calmly. Avery comes over to fan me with her hand, and that's when I jump up and twist around her. Is this another mix? How many mixes are there? And there's that beat like one of those movie songs. Girl, where the hell did you find I'm Too Sexy Anyway? Okay, okay, here I go, running down the esplanade, and Avery's cackling, and I start to twirl around and around until I'm dizzy enough that doing the falling over runway really is falling, bending side to side and taking the tightrope into fight rope, light rope, blight rope, smash the glass and jump up and down delight rope. And Avery runs in front of me and I stop, turn, put my hand on her face and then we turn around together. I'm holding onto her back like I could hold on forever. But then I push her aside and she laughs. And what is this mix? I don't remember this mix. And now I'm leaning back against Avery like a prop or a wall or a treasure or the end of the line or sustenance. Thank you. I got a little sweaty during that reading. Woo! <laughs> Where's that? We need that towel. <laughs> um, so yeah, so this is actually, this is the first reading of my West Coast book tour, so thanks for welcoming me. Um, in one week, I'll be, the next, the next event will be at City Lights in San Francisco. Thank you for the towel, Noelle. Um, isn't Noelle such a great host, by the way? <laughs> Uh, yeah, so feel free to tell your friends in San Francisco. Then I go up the coast. So I'll be um, Portland, Olympia, Seattle. I allegedly live in Seattle, so then I guess I go back there. <laughs> the rain has already come here. <laughs> so I'll get like four months of this, you know. Um, yeah, so um, what questions do people have? I'm open to everything, so 
Whatever comes into your mind, let it out. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. That's wonderful. Yeah, I think for me when I write, um, voice is always the most important thing. And in the book, there are a lot of things that change, you know, they change the voice, right? And one of those is dancing. And so I really want to... Like drugs obviously change the voice, right? Boston changes the voice. Queen's vernacular changes the voice. Trauma changes the voice. Desire changes the voice. And so for me, I think it really is about cutting out anything that gets in the way of that. And so in writing the dancing, I really wanted to imagine the dancing to be right there. So I don't, and so like as if you're dancing, right? So when you dance, you don't tell, you know, the, the viewer, oh, I'm about to start dancing, God, right? So it's like to feel that rhythm in the text, I think, was the goal. And I, and I think, I guess for me, I, I like my writing to, to sound spontaneous, to read spontaneous, but I, I do edit a lot. So like I probably did about 12 drafts of this book. Um, and I'm constant, the editing is constantly like cutting out anything that gets in, in the way. So it's good to hear the dancing works, right? And, but really, I think, yeah, it's about feeling it also and having that embodied feeling in the text itself. So, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, totally. Yeah, so um, with So Many Weeks to Sleep Badly, it was actually a paragraph a day. So it's even... <laughs> and that started actually, you know, it was when I developed really debilitating chronic pain, and I couldn't write like I used to write. And so I thought, you know, at first that was really paralyzing, and I was like, how, how am I going to live? You know, because writing is how I keep myself alive, really, you know. And so far it's worked. <laughs> um, and... So, so at that time, and then I thought, well, I'm an experimental writer, so let me experiment. What can I do? I can write a sentence here and there. And so, so basically, like a paragraph a day, maybe sometimes just two sentences, sometimes maybe two or three paragraphs. And after like two years, I was shocked that I had 400 pages. And I, at that point, I had never had 400 pages of anything, you know. And um, so that was really liberating. And, I'll, and also, I, so I used that as a method, right? So in, in each paragraph, maybe like 12 different things might happen. You know, there might be, do they happen, are they happening right now? Are they in the narrator's head? Are they on NPR at the yoga studio? There's this impending war, there's San Francisco, there's, you know, roaches and rats, there are people calling on the phone, and it's all, and that's the narrative, you know, so the narrative is built through all of that fracturing. Um, so with Sketch to See, it was interesting when I started, so I, I started after I, finished, uh, or after I think, yeah, after I was done with the end of San Francisco. And I had, had, I had lived in Boston at the same time period that the book takes place, and I always had stories from that time period that I would tell people, and they'd be like, oh, I love that story. But for me, I never thought, I was like, I don't know what, you know, those are good stories, but do I want to write a book about that? I don't know. 
And then I, but I was done and I was like, well, they keep coming into my head. So let me just start. And so I started with my own memories of the time. But really quickly, I think the book shifted um, because the trauma came through. So it was like the trauma of living in Boston, a city rapidly afraid of difference. Uh, the trauma of living in a gay culture that magnified all the worst aspects of straight hypocrisy. So, you know, racism, misogyny, you know, homophobia, um, everything, really. And Boston, that's true everywhere, but Boston is even more magnified. Um, and also the trauma of that moment, 1995. And so, and these are all, a lot of the characters are queens who are like 19, 20, 21, 22. They've all grown up with AIDS suffusing their desires and no way to imagine a way out. So it's not the generation that, that grew up and came of age in a sexually liberated time and then watched all their friends die. This is the next generation who grew up with only that to imagine, right? And so, so I think what happened is those that, that came through really fast, but in this very queenie, you know, flamboyant, like kind of narration, you know, which is, you know, I, that's the narration I live, right? But, but, it, but also, so I felt like that tension immediately. And I was like, how do I take this all the way? And so this book, in some ways, I wrote it more, uh, in terms of my process, I do use voice activation software now. And that, people think, oh, that means you talk and it writes for you. So that's not true. <laughs> what it really means is you have to integrate your writing into your speech. So if I talk to you like this, I'm like, blah, 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 blah. And then it will, let's say I say, oh, I'm here at, the, at Skylight Books. And on the screen, it will say, um, I ate a sandwich. Um, so you, you can't go back and edit that because you're like, I guess, I, what am I talking about, right? So you have to edit it in the moment. So for me, I mean, I've been doing it for a while now, like, like probably the, the last uh, few books that I wrote, I wrote with it. Um, so it's kind of integrated into my, so it's kind of like I'm writing with my hands, but it's my voice that I'm using, you know. And um, so, so yeah, I think, so in, in some ways it was more narrative than, than my other books, and I generally don't believe in plot. You know, I'm always like, get that shit out of here, right? Um, but something came through that was kind of like a plot, and I was like, well, I mean, again, if I'm an experimental writer, I need to, like, experiment and have this plot be there, right? And, and the other thing that happened is I, you know, I created some characters that, that really, they, in, the, in, in the beginning, they were just there to show the hypocrisy of Boston, like, and actually Avery, the character I just, I just you know, read, um, that was a character that initially arose just to show, like, the absolute total absurdity and then became something else. And so for me, it's like hypocrisy, beneath hypocrisy, there's always something else, right? Sometimes it's just more hypocrisy. But it's like that's kind of what I'm getting at the book is what is beneath. Like, the trauma is beneath you know, there's, and there's a, there are other things too. There's desire, there's a desire for connection. There's like, you know, an imagination of something else. There is this feeling of being trapped, I think, for all the characters, but, but also what else, what else is there? And what else happens in moments that may be gone, you know, right around the corner? And what else is like, you know, so, so kind of like um, unwinding the layers through the kind of the, the voice itself. Does that answer your question? Okay, good. <laughs> Uh, other questions? These are great. Yes. 
Yeah. Exactly, yes. Yeah, so the book takes place in gay club culture in Boston in 1995. And this is a culture where community is bonded by drugs, right? And But what else goes along with the drugs is the music. The drugs, you know, that's, we see the obvious corruption in that, right? Um, but also there is, you know, in some ways there is a liberating aspect of it because a lot of these characters don't have other options, you know, for actually finding one another. The music, in some ways, is perhaps the most... Um, you know, there isn't like a dark side to music, at least not in my opinion, right? <laughs> and um, and so the music, I think, is, like, like I said actually before, in terms of the voice, that's another thing that shifts the voice. And so the music of that time period, especially like late night, you know, bitch, queen, runway, house, you know, is what like gives the book kind of like a, a rhythm, you know? And... Um, and that, yeah, that was another thing actually in writing the book. It's funny because some songs I put in the book that I totally remembered from that exact moment. And then later, you know, the copy editor was like looking them up and was like, well, this song came out in 1997. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> and because I'm using the lyrics also, at, they become, because in, you know, in this culture, the lyrics of these songs become things that people say to one another, right? They become, you know, I can't, what was this? I think it was uh, It's Not Over, you know, and... Uh, and so the people kept saying it, so I had to like take it out, <laughs> you know. And people are quoting lyrics, but but also people you don't know when they're quoting lyrics, when they're just saying it, you know. And um, some of these songs, like "Cameras Ready, Prepare to Flash," you know, that keeps coming up, and and they they also like become in different contexts, they mean different things. Right, "Brighter Days" was another one that 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 keeps coming up, you know. Um, and and so part of that for me is yeah, it's giving the the prose itself, a kind of rhythm, um, and also showing a kind of a kind of rhythm that's beneath or or inside like all of these lives. Because these are most of the book, you know, it's instead of the nine to five world, it's like the five p.m. to nine a.m. world, right? And so the characters, you know, they basically in some ways are succeeding at living outside of that, you know, work a day kind of experience. Although they're all most of them have, you know, definitely internalized, you know, all of the violence of those other worlds that they're, you know, trying to live outside of. But, um, but yeah, in some ways, music is that is the one pure thing. I, I don't know if I had thought of that until this exact moment, but I think I would say that now. <laughs> yes. Uh huh. Uh -huh. Yeah. And I'm curious what your takeaways or, or what your reflections are on that now, looking back, like, again, like, what your own impressions of the drug aspect were. Were they overall positive, negative? Mm -hmm. like, so in my own life, I think drugs saved my life, you know, when I was like 18, 19, 20, 17, yeah, maybe like starting 14, that, you know, it was first, to, sorry, <laughs> 14 to 20, you know, um, 
And and I, by drugs, I mean, you know, initially it was like, you know, cutting up Vibrant and taking it so I could possibly go to school. You know, it's like, God, like, how am I going to deal, you know? And then being like an anorexic teenager and like, okay, Vibrant, that's a good way to, you know, stay away, alert, right? <laughs> you know, and, and I, it did in some ways follow that trajectory. That, you know, and then it's alcohol and then it's pot and then it's, you know, ecstasy and then it's coke and then, you know, and in different cities, the different things, you know, like Crystal was really the worst one for me. Um, but I think, um, so for me, I think that time period, they really was, and drugs were, I really believed in them, you know, I was like, because they had given me a way to escape, you know, and growing up in a world, you know, I sexually abused my father, like, growing up in a world that kind of wants you to die or disappear, and internalizing all that, and also being a very, I was like a very, like, overachiever, kind of like high school student, and I wanted to get the fuck away. Drugs were like, get out, right? It wasn't like, help me do something. It was like, help me escape. I just wanted to be like, flying diagonally backwards into the air. And like, someone's talking to me and I'm like, yes. <laughs> um, and I think somewhere around 20, it, it changed and drugs became a trap, you know? And I think part of the first thing for me, really, it was Crystal in San Francisco. Yeah, that was like 19. Um, it was like, because I originally started doing Crystal because I was like, the music was so bad at the clubs until like 6 a.m. And it got really good at 6 a.m. And so Crystal's a great drug to do so you can start dancing at 6 a.m., right? And I was like, <laughs> but like that drug wrecked me. I mean, I could just do two bumps and it would destroy my life. Like destroy. I would be like a sheet of paper. Like someone would have just ripped me in, in apart, you know, when I crashed. And that, so that was the first window for me. I was like, oh, it's not, it's not just something beautiful. It wasn't beautiful anymore. And I was, it was a trap. And, and then I think, but it was also a habit. So there were different times where I was like, I need to get out of this, right? And then I would kind of get out. And then I would get trapped by something else, you know, be like Coke, you know? And for me, I think drugs, I had a really strong survival mechanism. So I, and also I never wanted to do them to be creative, and that was good for me, I mean, because I saw people who would be like, oh, my God, I can't write or do, you know, be a more actually performance. People in performance, they were, like, you know, like couldn't do, any, couldn't do anything. And I was like, I can't be like that. So that sort of, in some ways, that saved me because I was like, I could sense it a little bit. And then I was like, okay, I can't. I have to, you know, stop in some ways. But I mean, it took a while. And it, but it became a trap, I think, probably for a decade well, actually, that's not true, because I guess I did. It felt like a decade, but, but I, I did stop doing I haven't done drugs, you know, in like, I don't know, 15 years or something, you know. Um, and, or more, I guess. Yeah, like six, 15 or 16 years. 16 years. Um, but, so for me, but it was like, yeah, so for me, I like recognized the, the trap, and then it took another five years to get out of it. Um, and actually, writing the book is really interesting, because people ask about that, you know, like, like some people just assume I was high when I wrote it, right? Uh, but other people are like, what was it like? For me, it was great because I was high, you know, from writing it, you know? So I could feel those sensations, but I was not on drugs. And I was like, this is, I loved it, you know? I mean, it was a little disorienting when I was like really in it, you know? Because I'd be like, oh, wait, wait a second, wait. Okay, 2015, you know? Uh, I'm not in Boston, you know? I'm not, um, and... In the book, I think drugs, like I said, I think drugs are the way that community is formed. And it's a very corrupt 
community, but it is actually the way that these queens find intimacy. It's the way that they break out of their shells. and Because this is a, a world where, you know, they just walk out of the house and people are just saying, I'm going to kill you, you know, throwing bricks at them, you know, like oh, they're on the tee, the subway, and, you know, people are just screaming at them, you, I'm going to kill you, and everyone's just sitting there like nothing happened, you know. And, and they're in a gay culture where, you know, because they're queens, they're garbage, you know, they're worthless pieces of trash that need to be disposed of. And so drugs help them to not have to deal with that, you know. And so it does a lot, you know. So and, and um, but they also become a trap, you know, because <clears throat> because of that. So drugs are more of a. The more you get from them, the harder, the more of a trap they are, right? There are people who do drugs and they're like, oh, that was fun, whatever, you know. So that's that's a person who can probably do drugs, right? <laughs> like maybe, um, but. But in this book, yeah, I think so. It, there, and, the, and I think, so what becomes a way to escape trauma actually becomes something that compounds the trauma. Um, and, but I think for me in the book, I really wanted to, I think there are, t it is possible that drugs are the best thing that some of these characters have. And I want that possibility to be open. You know, even if it may also be destroying their lives, you know. So I think it's, I wanted to show both at the same time without imposing a hierarchy um, over like what is good and what is bad. Thank you. Other questions? Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, there's a scene in the book. Um, where Alexa and another character, Polly, they go to watch the, the Larry Clark movie, Kids. And it's actually at a very dramatic time in the book. And they're like, oh, let's go somewhere for light entertainment. <laughs> um, and instead they see Kids, right? And so, yeah, luckily I did watch it again so that I could get, I, first I wrote it without watching again. And then I wrote it while watching it, a few times I did, so that I could get like some exact details and sort of sense into the reactions. I, in the book, there are a couple different moments, like Todd Haynes is safe, they also go to that, to watch that. They're different, I wanted to put, you know, things that were happening in that moment, like into the book in real time, and also things that have happened, you know, just before. Like, like they read Rebecca Brown's The Gifts of the Body, uh, which came out in 95. Uh, David Wondorovich, um, you know, they, they read uh, Memories That Smell Like Gasoline, which came out a few years before. Um, but in, and also in some ways, those, like, those moments for me, or, or for, in the book, they're ways that, you know, because Alexa, the narrator, you know, she's, she's a scathing, you know, she has a scathing um, radical queer analysis in a world where there, there's no possibility to actualize that. There is nothing. And so she's trying to make, like, club culture into that. <laughs> and, um, and so, where was I going with that? Oh, and so I think in some ways, there are times when, like, reading The Gifts of the Body or watching Safe, where she's able to access her emotions in a way that she can't access 
in her everyday life. So it's these works of art that bring her into her body in a certain way and also offer, I mean, actually, um, I, just, I'm going to separate that from kids for a second, but like, so let's say Safe or The Gifts of the Body or Memories of Smelly Gasoline, those offer her a kind of kinship with like an older queer generation that she doesn't have. And kids, of course, is more of a like, it compounds the trauma, you know, because it's, uh, it's a movie that, you know, lives for, you know, making, in this case, Chloe Sevigny, you know, just go through everything and, you know, um, and fall apart. And that was, a, I'm glad that you agree with that moment because there is this moment where suddenly Chloe Sevigny's hair is shorter and her makeup is better, you know. And I was like, <laughs> so I was like, so I put that into the, you know, into the, into the narrative. So, yeah. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think, speaking for myself, I would say community is about finding a way to build something um, that challenges the violence of the status quo, you know, in the ruins of the world around us. Um, so finding a way to live with and lust for and take care of one another that's not predicated on the violence that all of us have learned growing up. I mean, there's no, there's no exception. Like even people who grew up in non-traditional families that offered some sort of, you know, safety net, which is a small percentage, right? But even those people, they live in the world too, right? And so there is always going to be that um, suffocating um, violence of just everyday survival. And so I think for me, community is about going beyond uh, I mean, one, it is surviving and like finding other people who are struggling in the same way that you are and building building space for people who are on the fringe. So building space for people who are marginalized. And that means both in the larger world and in our own world. So like, you know, we can create like a, a radical queer, you know, utopia in, in certain spaces. And to me, that's not enough, right? Because like, we have to also be engaging with the larger world. And we also have to be engaging with ourselves. So when we see our so-called radical queer utopia has the same kind of hierarchical kinds of violence as the world around us, um, it's time to like, you know, dismantle that, right, and challenge that violence. So, um, so that's what I would say. In the book, I think there isn't necessarily, there's definitely not the possibility for those, you know, ideals. That's, that's already like off the table in a certain way. So Alexa may imagine that. Um, it may be what she wants, but it, it's there. And it's, I really wanted in writing this book, because a lot of my work is, is about those queer worlds that we're talking about and their hypocrisy as well. Um, this book is really about having that analysis but being stuck in something else, you know, that is a lot closer to a more mainstream gay culture that magnifies all the worst aspects in a really blatant way. So, yeah. Thank you. Other questions? Yes. One more question, and then we'll have time for signing. For private questions, you can come up with private questions. And just as important, hugs. So if anyone wants a hug, I've got it. You just come up to me and say, I want a hug, and I've got it, okay? <laughs> so who's going to ask the final question for this evening? Go ahead. 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 Go
Oh, the next book is called The Freezer Door. It's about desire and its impossibility um, through the lens of gentrification, the hypocritical allure of gay male sexual culture, um, the tyranny of the suburban imagination over city life, um, the, uh, the dream of the city as a place where you can find everything and everyone that you never imagined and whether that's still possible. Um, it's about Seattle um, and it's about me. <laughs> so thank you so much for coming. I'll be here. <laughs> You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.